0: It is July 31st, my 12-year anniversary. Jennifer has put up with me for 12 years. Can you all believe that? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Thank God she didn't Teshuba. That's right. Repent. Uh, This morning's topic is restoration. So what we're going to look at in the Word is the idea of restoration. A few weeks ago when Abigail, my daughter, uh, was born, by the way, that's a Hebrew word that means my father's joy. Yeah, I'm hoping she turns out well, you know. <laughs> in, in the uh, Eastern world, they named their children based on what their function would be uh, because they're a very deed-oriented society. So when Jesus' name was Yeshua, it mean, meant salvation. His parents were naming him because an angel told them to what his function in life was. They didn't just pick names because they sounded pretty like we did. Uh, they hoped that they were prophetic, that they would speak about their future. Well, a few weeks ago when my daughter was born, um, I got this word in my spirit. And Now, I know that can sound weird to people. What do you mean he got a word in his spirit? A thought began to roll around in my mind that wasn't really my own. It didn't uh, originate with me. I was off thinking about something else, and a third party seemed to speak something to me. Sometimes Christians call that God speaking, and it's confusing because... You know, the heavens didn't part, and Charlton Heston didn't speak, and a bird didn't fly down. You know, that, that's not how that worked. It just was a thought that I believe God introduced because He wanted me to to dwell on it. And it was restoration is bigger than separation. You say, well, what on earth? I mean, why would God say something like that to you? Because over the next few weeks, several relationships in my life where we had experienced a separation would be restored. And God was trying to tell me that it was more important to him that restoration occur than separation. You know, as Christians, sometimes we we'll allow ourselves to be separated many thousands of times. That's how you get all the denominations that we have. Paul very clearly says in the Corinthian church, some of you say you follow Cephas, some of you say you follow Paul. Shame on you. Was either of these men crucified for you? He said, I didn't even baptize you. Well, a few of you I did. But... We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. They had broken up into all of these divisions. We separate over just anything. You know, Matthew might not like the stained glass we have in here. That's why we don't have stained glass. Brad might not like the steeple. Most of you might not like the preacher. And these are reasons that people pick up and they head to another church and they separate. Now, I'm not distraught about that because God can use the many factions. He always has. He works through sinful people. That's if he didn't, I couldn't be here today. But this is not the ideal. We serve a God who is restoring the creation. you all know what that means? Do you know the show This Old House? you all remember This Old House? I don't even know the guy on that. That's not Bob Vila. Who's that? It's the Yankee yeah, it's the Yankee guy. Anyway, that whole show is fascinating because it's taking something that is old and making it new again. That's exactly what is happening in the creation. As we teach them, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the overall plan of God just because I can't help it. That's part of my calling. But I want you to begin to think about how this works actually in your life. We are a part of a creation that has had something interjected into it that was not intended, and that was sin. And God is about restoring the creation. He doesn't throw it away. An idea entered the church, and it entered the church in the 150s. A guy named Origen... It's easy to remember his name because it's like original or origin. Origen, who had been a Greek philosopher, became a Christian. Greeks thought about things really differently than Hebrews did. The Hebrews saw all of the earth as good. Anybody know why they would see all of the earth as good? Because six times in a row, in the days of creation, God said it's good or very good. Right? So they saw it as good. They didn't see things as evil, but the Greeks did. They saw the spiritual world as pure, now, we know the spiritual world's tainted too, right? There's spiritual powers that are not God out there. Uh, you don't have to look very hard to find them. But they saw the spiritual world as pure and the natural world, the physical world, as evil. This led to all kind of heresies in the church, led to the idea that anything your flesh enjoys is bad. And anytime you can hurt the flesh, it's good and spiritual somehow. That's how they ended up flogging themselves and doing all kind of other stupid things. Paul warned Timothy, he said, in the last days people will forbid marriage. Wow, I wonder how we ended up with that. It's happening today. Well, I say all of that to say that this led to the idea that salvation was leaving this world, this old evil, wicked world, and flying away to somewhere else. And our hymns reflect this. This is because this Greek philosopher who became a Christian imposed a Greek set of beliefs upon a Hebrew book. The Hebrews never saw salvation that way you're going to see they saw salvation as everything being made new. This is why the topic of Christianity, the goal of Paul's preaching was a resurrection. You know what a resurrection is? It's the renovation of your body. It's when this old house becomes something new. I was with my grandmother on my wife's side. I don't know whether you refer to that as an in-law or what. She's my grandmother. Her house, her tent that she lives in, is wasting away. Uh, It's barely a shell of a human frame there. And yet, the God that we serve says that the moment her eyes close, she's with Jesus. Now, that's not the end of this story, though. That's just the beginning. The end of the story is, as Job cried out in the oldest book in the Bible, with her own two eyes and with the flesh of her flesh, she would stand upon the earth and see her Redeemer. The Bible is a book about the renovation or restoration of man to an incorruptible state. That woman will be resurrected from the dead, meaning that she will never be able to die again, be in a body, and rule and reign on the earth. Now I said, But what about heaven? What about going to heaven? This was a temporary thing. People died and they went to heaven while they awaited the resurrection. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, who in here can start the Lord's Prayer? Y'all talk to me or I'll cry. Our Father who art in heaven, thy kingdom, what? Come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This was the Hebrews crying out for God's kingdom to be established on earth. This is what all of the Old Testament prophets are pointing to is the one man through whom this process of restoration would start. So we're going to study that today with the idea that we're going to discard some of our old thoughts about otherworldliness. In fact, it makes me sick to hear Christian songs that sing about this stinking old earth and flying somewhere else. That's not at all scriptural, not not even a little bit. The Bible says that the meek will inherit the earth. Now, that wasn't just to the Jews. That wasn't just to your neighbors. That wasn't just to anybody. You're not going to live on a cloud and play a harp in heaven. Those are all ideas that were birthed out of Greek heresy and further expounded through Catholicism in the dark ages when people didn't understand the Word. And our dear friends that were Reformers went a long ways to correcting the problems, but they never went far enough. Uh, Interesting note just for fun. When you say Reformation, most people think of Martin Luther, right? You know how we ended up with an 11 o'clock service in most Protestant churches as opposed to an 8 o'clock mass? Martin Luther had a hard time getting up on Sunday mornings. You know why? He drank too much on Saturday nights. His diary says that. Does that shock you? And yet God used him mightily. All of the hymns that he wrote were to tunes of bar tunes in his day. Does that shock you? Does that mean that he was horrible and God couldn't use him? Friends, God used him mightily. That's why we're here and why I'm not speaking Latin. I'm wearing a funny little collar and a ridiculous hat, you know? Okay, y'all with me? So we're going to talk about restoration this morning. And on this topic, I want to remind you of a couple things. One is, there is no division between New Testament and Old Testament. That's something that we've created. God has one Word. God is one person who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We put divisions there to help us understand how the books were organized. But the Word of God is the Word of God. Uh, Old implies you need something new and improved. (laughs) The Word of God is flawless and perfect. You should meditate on it day and night, the Bible says. So, in fact, the Bible that Paul read, the Bible that Peter read, the Bible that all of our Christian forefathers took their stand on did not include the 27 books of the New Testament. You know why? They were writing them. It was, in fact, between 200 and 300 years after Jesus' birth that the New Testament Scripture was canonized. So when I preach, most of the time, and I hope this doesn't bother you, If it does, it just does. (laughs) We preach out of the Old Testament. That's not because I don't love the New. I do. I I bet I've read the New Testament more times in here than anybody else. I'm not saying that pridefully. I live in it. It's because I expect you to already know the New Testament. I expect that. So when I refer to something, if I don't give you a New Testament scripture, it's because I figure since it's only one-third of the Bible, you should have that almost memorized. So we're going to refer to the promises in the Old most of the time and then how they're elaborated upon in the New does that make sense? Yeah, please don't get mad at me about that. In Exodus nineteen six, we're going to see something. So you can turn to Genesis and then Exodus. We're going to be in the nineteenth chapter. This is on page eighty two if you're in the Thompson chain. What time do we start? About five, ten after? Something like that? Okay. Can we y'all in Exodus? Y'all got to talk to me. I would just cry and run out. And then what will you do? All right. Girls there. Uh, in Exodus 19, we see a phrase that you've heard applied to the church your whole life. And it did apply to the church. But it applied to somebody else first. Start in verse uh, 5. It says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Israel is a word that means prince with God. And what God is telling this one nation is, if you'll be obedient to me, out of all the nations on the planet, you're going to be a special nation for me. You're going to be a nation that is like a priest among the other nations. In fact, I have named you prince with God. You're going to be my prince for all of the other nations to learn from, to see, to be an example to them. Now, those of you that have been around for a little while know that when we learn things, it's not always from what's done right. In fact, those mentors that I have in the faith taught me many things through what they did right and even more through the few things that they did wrong. See, error has a way of making a bigger impact on you than anything else because it usually carries with it a price, some kind of pain, right? Right? You could go to a driver's ed course and go out and drive on the roads and if you never have any accident or anything, that's great and we're proud of that. I bet the first time you don't turn on your blinker and make a left turn and hit somebody and have to pay to get your car fixed, you don't forget to turn on that blinker again. We have a way of letting consequence teach us. That's just human nature. Well, one of the ways that Israel would be a priest to us is the things that they erred in as much as the things they got right, would be an example for us. And we won't read it now, but 1 Corinthians 10 and the 11th verse speaks to us and says, everything that happened to them was for two reasons. To warn you not to make the mistakes they did and to be an example for you so that you'll know how to live. That's what the nation of Israel did. Now Peter looks at the nation of Israel who was called the kingdom of priests and he says, you know what? Now that includes you Gentiles too. You've been grafted into Israel. You are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, meaning that we are examples for everybody else to learn from, what we do right and what we do wrong. Well, if Israel was the original example, I'd like to look at some things Israel was told. So from Exodus, you can go from Genesis to Exodus to Leviticus to Numbers and find your way to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. In the 30th chapter of Deuteronomy on page 229, some things were told to Israel about restoration. Have you ever had the idea that you failed God? I certainly have. It can be a hopeless feeling if you're not careful. In fact, it can move from conviction right into condemnation. You can be worried if those people knew what I did. If those people thought what I had thought. Or, because I did this, God could never use me. You're going to find out that when God called you, a priest, a holy nation, just like Israel, a priest and a holy nation, He knew you were going to blow it when He called you. He's going to use your failures to magnify His greatness. Paul teaching on this subject in Romans 6, which, again, when I refer to these things, it's because I'm hoping that if you don't know them, you'll go home and read the New Testament and find them. It says, so what's the deal? Should we sin so that grace abounds? By no means. You're not a master to sin, or sin's not a master to you. What I'm trying to say as we study this is when God called Israel, He knew, in fact, He built into the plan the fact that they would fail and need to be restored. Just like when He called you, you were a failure and needed to be restored. We are houses in need of renovation and restoration, and we are on a bowl of dirt called earth that is in need of renovation and restoration. Now, as ministers of the gospel, which each of you are, each of you are called a saint in the Bible, and each of you are called servants of the gospel. Okay, that's not something special for me because I stand up here. That's each one of you. We are supposed to teach people about God's restoration process. He has a desire to restore the creation. He has a desire to restore your marriage. He has a desire to restore you. The Bible says this in various ways. He says, if any man is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.16 says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have gone away, and behold, the new has come. The very same words are spoken over the earth in the book of Revelation. Behold, I have made all things new. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. All of this speaks of God restoring. Now, as I talk to you about this plan, this bigger plan, remember, this applies to the fight you had with your wife yesterday. God's able to restore it. This applies to the child that you don't speak with anymore because there was uh, angry words. God is able to restore it. The very idea that God could save you means God can restore you. That's what saving is. That's what being delivered is. And it applies to every area of our lives. There's no room in a Christian's life for division. There's no room in our lives to allow sin to separate because God's bigger than that. And when you take that stand, when you will not be separated from somebody, when you will not allow hurt feelings to dictate your behavior, God is able to bring restoration. And you know what? It usually comes through esteeming someone else's needs higher than yours. So somebody cuts you off in traffic. So what? Maybe they needed to get there worse than you did. You know? So your wife took that last cinnamon roll and ate it, my wife would never do that. Y'all you know, in uh, Deuteronomy 30? When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come upon you, <laughs> and, you take to heart, and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. Now, I didn't tell you, but you know why that's funny? Well, I'm laughing at that. God has just got through saying, if you're obedient, this will happen. If you're disobedient, this will happen. They said, we'll be obedient to everything you said. The next thing that happens... God says, okay, now when you're disobedient and I disperse you among the nations, He knew when He gave them the commands that they were going to be disobedient. Just like when He called you, He knew you weren't perfect, but He told you to be perfect. Is that because He's a mean, cruel God? No, He's telling you what to aim for on this walk that that is our life. He's telling you what to strive for. And when you get off course, just like Paul, you remember when Paul was saved? Saul, Paulus of Tarsus, the Lord speaks to him and says, Saul, Saul. Why do you kick against the goats? That was God poking him, trying to get him on the right path. I found out in my life, you know, one of the biggest... Every time I go to Baton Rouge, I think about this. I don't know why. I just came back from Baton Rouge. There was a, a young man that beat me felt like within an inch of my life at some time in my life. And after the CAT scans and all of those things were done, there was a new attitude in me. It's amazing how that will happen. <laughs> And it began a humbling process in my life that eventually led me to the Lord. You say, well, are you saying God would want to beat him up? No, what I'm saying is God's able to use anything to goad you into the right direction. And when you recognize that, you can see joy in everything that happens. Isn't that good? Yeah, every time I cross Mississippi River Bridge, that crosses my mind at least once, you know. (laughs) When I got saved, I ran around introducing myself as... Eric Stevens, I've been born again, and I apologize for anything I did to you. <laughs> you know? Took me two years to go find everybody. That was before I knew there was a 12-step program for alcoholics. You know, I just knew it was a Christian program. I'd been on the wrong road, and now I need to get on the right one and tell everybody I'm sorry for the havoc I'd caused in their lives. Okay, so he's going to disperse among the nations. And when you and your children return to the Lord your God, and obey Him with all your heart and with all your soul according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and will have compassion on you and gather you again from the nations where He scattered you. Keep your finger there and let me tell you about this. What God is saying is, I've just told you what I expect of you, but I know that you're going to screw it up. He said, but I tell you what, whenever your heart turns towards me, Whenever your soul cries out for Me, I will fix what you've messed up. I will restore your good fortunes to you. What's been scattered, I will gather for you. Have you ever felt like you just wasted something horribly? That's not, that's not an excuse to waste it, but God is able to restore it for you again. So maybe you haven't treated your wife the way that you should. God can restore to you a new heart and you can again start new with her. Maybe you have not watered Your marriage in the way you should, or your job in the way you should, or your children. God is able to restore it again. None of us are thrown away. When it's done wrong, God knew when He called you, you were flawed. And He's looking for the opportunity for His restoring power to be displayed in you. The New Testament declares that God put His treasure in a jar that He called clay, He put His all surpassing power in a clay jar. Now, why would you do that? He wanted this clay jar, our bodies, that is holding His all-surpassing power for it to be evident that it's not us. This is weak, it's clay, it's brittle. Anything that's good in us, anything that looks beyond human in us came from God. He put His power on display in something that's weak and transparent. You ever had the idea that Christians had to be perfect? You don't. You just strive for it. It's in your failings and your repenting that people see the power of God in you. It's not through all the success. It's not through the prayer of Jabez, I assure you. You know, everybody in the world's praying right now for their tents to be enlarged, for God to bless them. Nobody sees God in prosperity. I mean, they can preach it all day long. That's not where you find God. Out of all the cities in Israel, some 350 cities, there's a very prosperous region in the northwest, a fertile plain, None of the prophets were from that fertile plain. None of them were from where life was easy. In fact, out of 350 cities, some 300 were on a dry and arid place. Do you know why? Because it's in the tough times that you find God. You say, well, that's jailhouse religion. You know, they just called on God because they needed Him. Friend, if God can't get you to a place where you realize you need Him, you're without hope. That's part of the human experience is getting to a place where you realize that your only real hope in life is Him and His restoring power. So this, Israel's told, called, I'll scatter you among the nations. This is funny because they've just become a nation. <laughs> you know? on, on the day of their great assembly, they're being told, well, you're going to get dispersed all over the globe. Even if you were banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you back to the land that belonged to your fathers and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and more numerous than your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love Him with all your heart, with all your soul, and live. There's a problem in humanity and that's that we are under the power of death. But God said, look, I want you to obey My commands and when you don't, and, and there's a penalty for that, I will still work with you. Just turn your hearts towards me and I will draw you back. They can't, you can't be scattered out so far from me that I can't bring you back, he says. And when I do, I will circumcise your heart. So why on earth are the Jews so obsessed with circumcision? What, what on earth does that mean? Your heart in the Bible was the very center of you. The heart of a city, we might say, is the center of a city. Same thing. This is your heart. Uh, It's L-E-B-A-V, Lebav in Hebrew. And this is your your center of you. And what God is saying is, whatever is fleshy or unnecessary in your heart, through this process of trying to be obedient and figuring out that you're scattered away and having to return, and being scattered away and having to return, I will begin to chip away at those things that should not be in your heart. You know what? If you get everything right as a Christian, you know what you are? You become very self-righteous you become full of nothing but judgment, no mercy. Somebody that has never failed looks at everybody else's failure and goes, how could you do that? They get on TV and preach with the white hair slicked back and the big Cadillac in the background and point at all of your sin and all of your failure. This is not what God was about. God was about knowing that you were weak, getting you to acknowledge your weakness and then helping to strengthen you. The Gospel was never meant to beat you down with. It was never meant to beat Israel down with. It was supposed to be uplifting. It was supposed to be encouraging. And yes, correcting. I'm not telling you everything you do is right. It most certainly is not. But God is in the restoring business. Did you notice when he said he would restore them, where he said he would restore them? He didn't say, I will take you to heaven where you'll live for eternity, be propped up by a jukebox when you die, and fish on the clouds with little naked babies with wings flying around you. This was an invention of man who is ignorant of the gospel. Men who did great things in the Reformation, but envisioned heaven as a place where children played on carousels and ate candied apples. Well, that's not at all what the Bible envisions. And I want to get the Bible vision in my mind. There are a couple things in the New Testament that I'll refer to quickly, and then we'll move on to some other Old Testament Scriptures. In Matthew 17, verses 10 through 13, the disciples are confused. And they say, "Hey, why is it that the teachers of the law tell us that Elijah is going to come and restore all things. They ask that question. Why is it that Elijah is going to come and restore all things? And Jesus explains that John the Baptist was a kind of Elijah, but Elijah must come and restore all things. You look that up when you leave this church today, okay? In other words, there is a restoration yet in the future. We get to the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, the first chapter and the sixth verse, Jesus is about to talk to us apostles about the Holy Spirit, Right? It's about to talk to them about the baptism of the Holy Ghost and being empowered to go evangelize. And you know what's on their mind? They said, But at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They had such a foundation in the Old Testament that they understood what it was about with God's restoring power in their life, in their nation, and in the whole world. That's what they were waiting for. It's what they're looking for. Church today's gotten way off focus. All we ever talk about is believing, dying, and going to heaven. That's ridiculously short-sighted. In fact, it's a fairy tale. I'm not telling you there aren't elements of it that's true. I'm telling you that's not what the Bible's about at all. And if we've had a six-foot-tall icicle standing behind a wooden coffin that looks like a pulpit telling us this for years and years and years, and that's all we've accepted, we've not taken our stand on what the apostles took their stand on. Because Paul said some 40 times in the book of Acts, it's... The resurrection that I'm preaching. I say Paul said that. The book of Acts mentions it being said that many times. Paul said, I'm on trial today for the same hope as all of Israel that there will be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. The Bible is about this restoration process. Well, where did the idea come from? Turn with me to Isaiah. Is it okay if we turn to Isaiah? Okay. I promise you that I will not abuse you by keeping you here any longer than an hour if you will do your best to absorb what we're teaching today. Because you know why? If we come in here and I preach to you and talk to you and you walk out the same way that you walk in, I failed, you failed, and God's work has failed in your life. We have the idea that God is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. He's all of these things, omniscient. And I'm not degrading God. I'm not saying He's not any of those things. But friends, when he wants to accomplish something in your life and you don't do it, it doesn't get done. He has to raise up somebody else to do it. My job is to equip you. My job is to teach you so that you can do what God called you to do. Not so that you can be a follower of Eric. Not so that we can build a big church, have a gymnasium, gymnasium, or take over a compact center. None of those things are in my calling. My calling is about teaching you to do what God's called you to do. And you know what? I can't do it. Look to your left. They can't do it. Look to your right. They can't do it. You have a unique calling on your life. When God called Bobby Stevens or Matthew Pirro or Brad Hall or anybody in here, He had a work for you to do. Ephesians 2. Go read it. When you leave here, read Ephesians 2. It says that God saved you by grace, that this was done through faith uh, and not of yourself so that anybody should boast and that He did it in order for you to do the good work He prepared in advance for you to do. When God called Darren, He had in mind a work for Darren to do. This is why the Jews raised their children in a trade from the time they were young and taught them the law of God from the time they were young so that they would be prepared on the day the Father released them into their occupation to do God's work. It's only a Western invention that our idea is to believe and attend church. That's ridiculous. It's very sad. You've heard all of the corny sayings before, so I won't go through all of them, about going to a professional football game doesn't make you a professional football player. Going to McDonald's doesn't make you a Big Mac. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. You know what makes you a Christian? What you do. Not what you believe. What you do. So, are you on Isaiah? In Isaiah 2... Listen to what Isaiah prophesied. This is 740 years before Jesus. This is the prophet Isaiah that we call the Messianic prophet. He was a prophet to one nation on earth, Israel, because they were the prince with God whom we would learn from. Isaiah 2, page 758 if you're on the Thompson chain, says, This is what Isaiah, son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief." Among the mountains. How many times have you heard? Well, well, I won't name them. But how many times have you heard all the guys that write prophecy books, all of the guys that are on TV, teaching about prophecy, teaching about end times, interpreting the Bible based on the day's headlines? How many times have you heard them talking about the any minute rapture, the uh, in anything that they teach? If it's missing this phrase, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Something's wrong. Do you know why it's wrong? Because Isaiah starts off by saying, in the last days, this will happen. The goal of God is to make Israel, whom you've been grafted into, the prince with him, ruling over the entire creation. Do we see that today? Not at all. But you know what we did see today? In May 14th, 1948, a nation that had been dispersed among all the other nations in the world became a nation in a single day, just like the Bible said. They were gathered from the furthest reaches of the planet back to one place, just like God said. They would hold weddings again in Jerusalem after 2,000 years of not holding them, just like the Bible said. You know what this is? It's the beginning of the restoration process because that place above all others has got to be lifted up as a mountain of righteousness for everybody in the world to stream to. They're going to be chief among the nations. That's what the Bible says. First them, and then us with them. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways so that we may walk in His paths. The law will go out from Zion The Word, by the way, Zion is Jerusalem. It means the mountain of the Lord's brightness, but it is synonymous with Jerusalem. The Word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations. you ever read in Matthew about the separation of the sheep and goats? This occurs from Israel on Mount Zion with the King of the Jews doing what Isaiah said He would do. He will judge between the nations and settle disputes with many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The goal and plan of God was to establish His chief, His prince, as a pattern for all of the world to learn about His restoring power. He would restore us in a resurrected body first, and then all of the nations would learn to put away their swords to put away their weapons of warfare. We would enter into a time of peace on the earth. That was God's goal. That's God's plan. The apostles knew this. They were waiting for it. That's why they keep asking the questions that they ask. What was a mystery was how we got there. That was a bit of a mystery. While you're in Isaiah, let's read a couple more scriptures, then we'll move on. You can turn all the way to Isaiah 44. Actually, I'm not going to read you this. I'll just tell you. In Isaiah 44, verses 26 through 28, God says to Israel, actually, Isaiah wrote this down. Can you imagine? A lot of times in charismatic churches, you hear prophecies, right? Don't be weirded out by that. Prophecy is not looking over a crystal ball. It's simply being impressed uh, from God and encouraging word for somebody that you speak. And you believe that it's God, and if it's not, they're not bound to be obedient to it, okay? So don't, don't worry about that. But can you imagine how strong Isaiah's faith must have been? He wrote this down 740 B.C. about a guy that would not live until about 512 B.C., okay? or at least wouldn't come into power. So never met him, didn't know for sure he would exist, except he heard from God, and he said, you know what, we're living in a time where the temple's still existent, the temple's doing well, but it's going to get destroyed. And after it gets destroyed, God's going to rebuild it. And he's going to use a foreign king to rebuild it. His name will be Cyrus. And he wrote that in the Bible. He wrote that down in 740 B.C. And Cyrus wasn't in power until from 580 B.C. to 512, somewhere in there when the temple began to get rebuilt. Isn't that awesome? You know why God said he did it? God said in the book of Isaiah that he would write these things down in advance before they happened so that after they happened you would be able to look back and see that everything that he said was true, even if he announced it way in the future. You know what that's supposed to do for you? encourage you that though you look like this old house, though you're looking in a mirror and seeing flaws and faults every day, God is restoring you. And He announced it way in the past so that when it happened in the future, you would see it and marvel at how big God is. That was the reason. In Isaiah 49, you find out this was never just about Israel. Israel was the chief among nations. But there would be something else that would happen because God cares about all men. Isaiah 49 says, this is on page 813 if you're in a Thompson chain, Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant lands. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, He has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. Boy, I wonder who that sounds like. In the shadow of His hand, He hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in His quiver. He said to me, You are my servant. Israel, in whom I display my splendor. Through God's priest, God wants to display His splendor. Listen how He's going to do it. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand and my reward is with my God. Have you never felt like you were set apart for God, you're called as a Christian, but all of your labor wasn't producing anything? I have. Watch what happens. Verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those Israel of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you rise up. Princes will see you bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. In a situation where it looked like Israel was failing, Looked like Israel could not succeed. God said, it'd be too small of a thing for me just to restore you. I'm going to use you to restore all the peoples on the planet because I've chosen you. You'll be a light to the Gentiles. Friends, this is how you got the gospel. It looks right now like Israel has stumbled. Looks like they're not doing all of that well. This happened because God said, if I just did it for Israel, it'd be too small of a thing. I'm going to do this for all the nations of the earth, all the peoples of the world through Israel. In the New Testament, they understood this. They were reading the Old. They understood it and they were looking. They interpreted their days, their times based on this. So much so that... Well, let's read one more in Isaiah and then we'll get to the New Testament for you. In Isaiah 61, see if you remember these words and tell me who spoke them. In fact, when Jesus announced His ministry, there's a hint as to who's spoken. When Jesus announced His ministry, He didn't do it with something new. He didn't make up something as the Word of God. He didn't stand up and speak as a prophet of God with new words, even though He could have, right? Jesus was the Son of God on earth. Whatever He said, we had to do, right? And whose words did He use? The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. This is how Jesus opened His ministry in His hometown. Why didn't He stand up and say, you're all sinners and you need to repent, you wicked bunch of heathens. Take out your lighters. Is that hot? Not as hot as hell's going to be. Get to this altar. Why didn't He do that? God had a message of good news, which is, I know you're flawed, but you can be restored. You know, isn't it a neat thing to see an old car restored? See a car that's all rusted out, all the leather's cracked. This is horrible to even mention this in a sermon, but I love the show Pimp My Ride. Now, some of you know what that is and some don't. This is a show about restoring people's cars. And because people's vernacular today is horrible and they say things they shouldn't, they name the show Pimp My Ride. And what it basically means is we're going to take something old and nasty and make it new and shiny. I love to serve a God who does that. That's his goal, is to take something old and nasty and make it new and shiny. Matt's working on a new sermon until I can hear it. (laughs) Not not good. Yeah, No, it wouldn't fit. So when Jesus stands up to announce his ministry, he says, God's anointed me to bring you good news. As Christians, by the way, when you walk around with a big frown on your face, you know what it shows that you didn't get? The good news. Because when those angels showed up, he said, we bring you a message of good news and great joy. When you don't have great joy, it shows you didn't get the good news first. Go back, dwell on it, think about it until it begins to pull at the corners of your mouth in an upward direction. Ladies, it's the most attractive facelift you could ever get, I promise. So Jesus says, He anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. You can bring your ashes to God and He will give you something beautiful for them. You know what your ashes represent? These are your broken dreams. These are your failures. These are the times that you didn't get it right and you can come and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I needed to repent. But first, would you take these from me? And instead of slapping you down, instead of beating you with a stick, He will give you something beautiful for him. He'll give you a new vision. He'll give you new life. He will restore you. He'll make you beautiful. And the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities They have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work in your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of the nations. And he goes on and on and on. Every promise of salvation for a Christian includes the renovation and restoration of the earth. In fact, Romans declares that the earth is longing for the sons of God to be revealed because then it will be liberated from its bondage to decay. The goal of Christianity is a resurrection and a restoration. The earth experiences it. You experience it. Israel experiences it. And this is God's plan. He's a restoring God. You can't scramble the eggs bad enough for Him to not be able to put them back together. Now, I told you that in the New Testament, they were in tune with this. They understood it. They were looking for it. So that they made certain proclamations. And those proclamations were based upon the Old Testament. This is why we say the New Testament is the revealed Old Testament. Or another way to say it is that in the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. There's not a principle in the New Testament that is not found in the Old and vice versa. Does that make sense to you? In 2 Samuel 6, I'm not going to read you very many of these. I'm just going to tell you, but... If you don't mind, turn there so you can see. We're going to see 2 Samuel 6, 7, 8, and 9, okay? In 2 Samuel 6, something happens. David takes the Ark of God. Everybody familiar with the Ark of God? Anybody see Indiana Jones? Judah did. That's the Ark, okay? This Ark was a golden box, and the golden box contained within it the law of God and the manna, the life of God, and Aaron's staff that budded. This was another symbol of life. This box represented God's presence. In fact, it had cherubim on top of it, and God was said to be enthroned upon the wings of the cherubim. Okay? So where it went, this was a symbol of God's presence. In 2 Samuel 6, David takes this box, and he moves it up onto a hill, a hilltop called Zion. And on this hilltop, he puts it inside of a tent. Now, there's a long story about how it gets there, and then I don't have time today. But he put the presence of God inside of a tent. You know what he did then? He rolled up the sides of this tent so that those who passed by, other nations that were looking at Israel, wondering what they were doing, could see this golden box inside of this tent. He also hired worshipers that would worship 24 hours a day so people would hear the praises of God being sung as they looked up and saw this golden box inside of a tent. In 2 Samuel 7, God makes some promises to David and says, Look, There's going to be somebody who's going to come. He'll have a throne that will never leave the house of Israel. You'll have a descendant on the throne of Israel forever. In 2 Samuel 8, you see David sets out and he begins destroying all of the enemies of God. Everywhere he goes, the Bible says, God gave him victory. Okay? So this is the setting. You see the presence of God going into a tent. You see God then giving this nation victory everywhere they go. What follows it is a man named Mephibosheth. Y'all in 2 Samuel 9? In 2 Samuel 9, after the presence of God goes into a tent, after there's victory and warfare everywhere in Israel, this question is asked. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? David had made a covenant that covenant is found in 1 Samuel 2420 and also in 1 Samuel 2015. He made it with Jonathan and he made it with Saul. That when he came into power, when he destroyed all of the enemies on the earth, he would show kindness to the descendants of Saul. So David comes into power, he says, Who's here that I can show kindness to? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Zeba. They called him to appear before David and the king and said to him, Are you Zeba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Makir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar from the house of Makir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth saw Jonathan, the son of Saul, he came to David and bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied, don't be afraid. David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for your sake and the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant? that you should notice me, a dead dog like me. A time period happens where the presence of God is brought with great procession up into a tent for all of the world to see during a time of worship. New worshipers all around this tent so that the nations will look, see the presence of God, hear the worship. There was also a time of great warfare. King David is warring against all the enemies of Israel and winning. It's during this time period that Mephibosheth a crippled. Is brought to the king's table, all of his fortunes restored to him. He's nourished for all the days of his life. It's funny because in Acts 15, the Jewish apostles, keep your finger here and turn to Acts 15. We're going to close with this. By the way, that structure was called David's Tabernacle. In Acts 15, there's a problem in the New Testament church. You know what it is? Too many people like you are coming into the church. Too many Gentiles. The Hebrews don't know what to do. They knew that they were going to be a light to the Gentiles, but they didn't know there would be more Gentiles than them. And they don't know what to do. And they looked around, and in verse 15, you hear James say this. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. He's quoting Amos 9, by the way. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Now I say, Eric, what on earth are you reading me and why? When the church began... The apostles looked around. They knew the pattern in the Old Testament. They knew God was about restoring things. They knew God wanted to restore their nation. God wanted to restore their people and not just their people, the Gentiles of the world and the whole earth because God was a restoring God. You know what they did? They looked and said, Wow, just like David brought that ark up into a tent for all the nations to see, God has now put His Spirit in us for all the nations to see. His golden presence in the tent of our body for everybody to see. Just like David went out and did warfare and God gave him victory everywhere he went. Now that God's presence is in us, every spiritual power we encounter, every sin that tries to seize us, we can have victory over. And while they're thinking about that, this question comes, what do we do with all these Gentiles that are trying to come in the church? They remembered Mephibosheth, a crippled kid. He hadn't done anything wrong. He was just born to a bad family. Gentiles didn't do anything wrong. You just weren't born in Israel. Crippled. Couldn't get to God on your own. You needed somebody to help you, show you the way. And they said, you know what? We're in the days where we're rebuilding David's fallen tabernacle. They identified their lives with what had been prophesied. We're in a day where God will put His presence in people. He will give them victory everywhere they go. He's restoring this. You know what that makes you? That makes you a crippled child that comes to God, that comes to King Jesus and says, I bow down at your feet. I don't deserve anything that you have to give me. Mephibosheth said, What am I but a dead dog for you, my Lord? And what did he say to him? He said, Come, you're going to eat at my table all the days of your life. I will restore to you all that your father had. You know who our father is? Adam. He had the whole earth. If you will acknowledge that you're crippled, if you have a hard time reaching God, then God will adopt you, call you His Son, feed you, and restore everything to you. The apostles recognized this. They saw Gentiles who didn't know anything about God come in. They said, this is no different than Mephibosheth coming in to David's house. That's how they saw it. They said, we're living in a time where this is being rebuilt. This is why the New Testament declares the things that it does. All things are being made new. It would happen first with Israel and then with Gentiles that were grafted in. Now, if that's what you're the recipient of, if that's the promise that you've inherited, that you would be made new spiritually and physically and you would rule and reign the earth with Israel as a part of Israel, how dare we look at somebody else's flaw? How dare we look at somebody else that is in their process of restoration, maybe not as far along as you are, disdainfully? You were just a dead dog that God decided to save. That's the right attitude to have. You said, but that doesn't do much for my self-esteem. You know where your self-esteem comes from? It doesn't come from the fact that you're crippled or you're a dead dog. It comes from the fact that God adopted you as His son. That's what happens here as God places His Spirit in you and declares you to be His son. Acts 3, verse 20. I'm going to read you these and we're going to close says he must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Jesus will not be revealed until this restoration process is taking place. At his revealing is the resurrection. Paul said, hey, if Israel's rejection, if their hardening meant for you that you would come into this, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Guys, Israel has experienced a hardening for a time, and you know why? Because it'd be too small of a thing for God just to save Israel. He wanted to include you, the cripples, those that didn't know how to walk with God. And He's taught us, and we're walking with God, and it's that much bigger of a miracle. Galatians 6 says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. You know why Paul could say that? He knew what it was to be restored. He knew about the restoring power of God. We love to sometimes glory in people's failures. He tried to do that. And look, he failed. I knew that wouldn't work. Boy, that's the wrong attitude. The right attitude is if somebody blew it a little bit, help restore them gently because you're being restored. 1 Peter 5.10 says, And the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will Himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To Him be the power forever and ever. Amen. God allowed Israel to stumble so that when He restored them and us with us, it would be that much bigger of a miracle. Sometimes when you're struggling, you need to look at it as a blessing. Every struggle in your life is an opportunity for God's restoring power to be at work. So you blew it. So at work, you're trying to be a witness and you did something horrible just a chance for God to restore it and pull off a bigger miracle. You don't serve a little God. David, after blowing it about as bad as anybody can, after sleeping with another man's wife and having him killed, speaks and says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He knew God didn't throw him away. He said, I just need your help. Will you make me new again? Will you give me a spirit that's able to be obedient? God said that this guy's heart was like his. He'd failed horribly. But because he was willing, because he wanted to do what was right, God overlooked that and restored him again. We speak of being saved. I was saved. The truth is you're being saved every day. Being saved from yourself, you're being saved from the corruption around you, and it's not done yet. We speak about it, you know, we speak about the car as if it's already restored, when in reality it's in the process. There's a million psalms that speak about restoration and we don't need to read them all. But here's, here's the bottom line. If you're in process of restoration, you have to have mercy for those that are. The same way that God is restoring you, making you new, He's restoring the earth. This is our hope. When Paul stood at the Areopagus, Mars Hill, and Athens, and he spoke with the men there, these Greeks like us, who are great thinkers, he started by telling God had taken one man, this is Acts 17. He's taken one man and appointed him above all others. And He's proven this by raising him from the dead, showing He has power over the strongest forces in our world. And by Him, He's restoring all things. This is our hope. If you see something that's not quite right in your life, praise God, He's restoring you. If you see something that's not quite right in somebody else's life, praise God, He's restoring them. And if you're looking at a relative who's dying from cancer, praise God, He's restoring this whole creation. This what this is about, and it culminates in a resurrection. This is our hope. That's on what we've taken our stand. And it's what you take your stand on. This will breed mercy in you for others. It will breed faith in you in you for difficult circumstances, and it will give you the right perspective in life. It starts with Israel, and we're included in their promise. Y'all stand up and let's pray. you ever felt like you failed so bad God couldn't fix it that's why he included such horrible things in the bible as a man who gave away his wife or incestual relationships that ended up and God still could bless the descendants in the family or a rape that still didn't stop the presence of God from coming in the boy Jesus I that's why such horrible things are included in the bible for you to see so that you can see wow that happened and God still used them you mean Samson turned his back on God got his eyes put out and God still used him Abraham and Isaac both gave their wives to other men and God still used him Sarah didn't believe God gave her husband to another woman to produce a child and God was still able to work through that all of a sudden you losing your temper and yelling at the dog doesn't seem like too big of a problem for God to fix does it God will fix whatever is wrong if you come to him, humbly bow down, say, hey, in myself I'm a dead dog, but you've adopted me. You've made me your son. I want to eat from your table. I want to get back on track. You know what else he did for Mephibosheth? He put somebody else out in the field working for him all the days of his life. God will even put lost people to work on your benefit, like Cyrus. When Israel, the nation, stumbled, God took a foreign king, somebody who did not know God, and used him to serve Israel by paying for the temple to be rebuilt. God is able to use anything to bless you if you just turn your hearts toward him. You're never in a situation without hope. Y'all, let's pray.